Hi friends, Fred Harrell here. Thanks for tuning in to the weekly City Church Sermon Podcast. Just a note that as we continue to shelter in place here in San Francisco, we will be bringing you our Sunday Sermon audio recording via Skype over a Facebook Live broadcast. So if the audio quality seems like a little lower than normal, then now you know what's happening. We just wanted you to know. You can join us on Facebook Live each Sunday at 10 a.m. Thanks for listening and subscribing to our podcast. Today is Psalm 10, verses 1 through 12. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked persecute the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes they have devised. For the wicked boast of the desires of their heart. Those greedy for gain curse and renounce the Lord. In the pride of their countenance, the wicked say, God will not seek it out. All their thoughts are, there is no God. Their ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of their sight. As for their foes, they scoff at them. They think in their heart, we shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, we shall not meet adversity. Their mouths are filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under their tongues are mischief and iniquity. They sit in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, they murder the innocent. Their eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. They lurk in secret, like a lion in its covert. They lurk that they may seize the poor. They seize the poor and drag them off in their net. They stoop, they crouch, and the helpless fall by their might. They think in their heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Rise up, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the oppressed. The word of the Lord. Friends, before we read scripture this morning for the sermon, I want to, um, we are grateful to welcome back today to the City Church pulpit, uh, Laura Turner. Laura is a city churcher, a freelance writer and speaker, and is now back on the staff of City Church, working in the areas of communication and staff culture. We are grateful to have Laura in our community, along with husband Zach and the adorable two-year-old Chance. So Laura, welcome again, and thank you for being with us today. Thanks, Fred. Uh, When we still... Used to get the newspaper delivered to our house. One of my favorite daily routines was to read the obituaries. I still do this from time to time when I have a physical copy of the newspaper in front of me or when I stumble on a great obituary that someone shared online. I thought this habit was really weird until I started talking to people about it and began to see that it's much more widespread than I'd imagined. It turns out A lot of people like reading about death, or more accurately, about life. Obituaries don't always include how a person died, or where they were when it happened, or who was with them, but they always talk about how the person lived their life, where they worked, who they married, the legacy they leave behind. 
I wonder sometimes about the obituary that someone will write about me. I wonder how I will be remembered. When someone's death becomes the best known thing about them, their obituary is often kind of an afterthought. When someone becomes the face of a movement, we may know all about how they died, the coroner's report, the video, the last words, but we may not know much about how they lived. And as people of faith, if we believe anything, it is that how we live matters. So I wanna take a few minutes to talk about someone, to mourn someone whose face and name we all know very well at this point, but whose life we may know very little about. <clears throat> George Perry Floyd was born on October 14th, 1973. That was a Sunday. He was raised in Houston's third ward where he played football and basketball at Yates High School. And in a state where football is practically a religion, Floyd and his teammates were beloved for leading the school to the 1992 state finals. Floyd's home, as I mentioned, was in Houston's third ward, a predominantly black neighborhood. He was six feet, six inches tall, which earned him the nickname of Gentle Giant. In 2009, Floyd was sentenced to five years in prison as part of a plea deal for robbery. He served his time. When he was released, he moved to Minneapolis where some of his friends lived, a new beginning, a fresh start, an area to find community. He got a job as a security guard at a Salvation Army store, downtown Minneapolis. Later, he worked as a truck driver and a bouncer at a restaurant called Conga Latin Bistro. The bistro's owner remembered how Floyd would dance badly in order to make people laugh. It was this job that Floyd lost when restaurants were shut down in Minnesota due to the shelter in place order. Floyd had five children, including a daughter, six years old named Gianna. She lives in Houston with her mother, Roxy, who said that Gianna thought her father hung the moon. That was his baby, Roxy said. He loved that little girl. Roxy can't bring herself to explain to Gianna how her father died. He died because he couldn't breathe, she said. My heart is broken for my baby. It's broke. George Floyd is alleged to have used a counterfeit $20 bill to buy cigarettes. He died for less than what I have in my wallet right now, less than what it costs to fill a tank of gas or buy a hardback book. He died because our country sees black lives as expendable. Brian Stevenson, an attorney, author, and social justice activist spoke recently in a New Yorker interview about America's legacy of racism. The ideology of white supremacy, he says, was necessary to justify enslavement. And it is the legacy of slavery that we haven't acknowledged. This is why I have argued that slavery didn't end in 1865, it evolved. You can't understand these present day issues without understanding the persistent refusal to view black people as equals. Stevenson is absolutely right. And to be honest, there are times I find myself at a loss of what to do in the face 
of such overwhelming systemic racism. And even to be at a loss is a privilege because it means that I don't have to confront this racism on a daily basis. But I've come to understand that one of the most important things I can do right now is this sacred, this powerful work of paying attention. In her book, How to Do Nothing, the artist Jenny O'Dell addresses the damages of what she calls the attention economy, how social media and comparison and capitalism wrestle for our attention, tricking us into thinking we are only as valuable as we are productive. Ad tendere, she points out, is the Latin cognate from which we get the word attention. It means to stretch towards. Odell shares the work of Evelyn Carter, a social psychologist from UCLA. And Carter talks about the importance of attention in issues of racism. People in the majority, she says, and the minority often see two different realities based on what they do and do not notice. For example, white people might only hear a racist remark, while people of color might register subtler actions, like someone scooting away slightly on a bus. The remedy to this, Odell suggests, is for people in the majority to willfully pay attention to the experience of people in the minority. In her words, we assiduously refuse to let the other collapse into any one instrumental category. In other words, attention is a form of love. What we love, we tend to, and what we tend to, we love. To stretch toward is the motion that God is constantly making toward us. And the question is, how will we stretch back? Martin Luther King Jr. famously said that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. A lot of people, probably mostly non-Black people, have taken this to be an optimistic statement about the inevitability of justice. If we just wait long enough, humanity will inevitably progress towards justice. But King knew better than anyone that justice was never going to be inevitable and he reserved some of his harshest criticism for what we might call today, for what we might be today, the well-meaning white Christian. This is what he wrote in his letter from a Birmingham jail. I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the black man's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time and who constantly advises the black man to wait for a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance 
is much more bewildering than outright rejection. Someone I admire very much often reminds me that values inflict pain. When I value something, I will give up a lot to keep it. If you had my son, I would give you every worldly possession I own to get him back. If you had my husband, I would sell our house, stop working, spend every second I had to get him back. If you had my dog, I would say thank you and walk away very quickly, hoping you wouldn't change your mind. Don't value him too much. But what that means that values inflict pain is that if we aren't feeling pain over something, we probably don't value it. If you are posting black squares to social media, but you aren't giving your money, your time, your sweat equity to people and causes advancing racial justice, then you are, in the words of the Apostle Paul, a clanging symbol. And here's the thing, you are a clanging symbol. So am I. This is where the bit about the slow work of God comes into play. God is already at work bending the arc of the moral universe toward justice. We non-black people are often behind God's work here. And now, in this moment of time and eternity intertwined, we are invited deeply into the work of moral justice to bring with us only humility and attention and to leave all of our anxieties about perception, mistake-making, and performative allyship behind. These do not serve anyone. One thing I've heard often from my black friends in the past week is that as nice as it is to have white people speaking out against racism and engaging in protests while our country is in the flashpoint of this moment, the real work isn't primarily the work we're doing this week. We are in a sprint. The momentum of this moment of deep pain in our country will slow down, and the sprint that we started with so much energy will turn into a marathon. And we, and I as a white person, we will be tempted to lose stream, steam, to abandon the cause, to settle back into my comfortable life and slowly start reading books that do not challenge me, start listening more to my white friends and my friends of color. When I see the pain of the world acutely, I can be moved by that pain and engage in it. But when the news cycle moves on, as it inevitably will in weeks or months, who will I be then? How will I love then? The black community in America has always been in pain on account of racism. In this moment, I cannot ignore that pain. But what will happen when I can go back to ignoring it as I have? in the past. What kind of person will I be then? What kind of people will we be then? This, I believe, is the slow work of God. There's a beautiful prayer by the Jesuit priest Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, and I'm reciting it to myself a lot these days. This is part of what I want you to listen to. Above all, Trust in the slow work of God, he writes. We are quite naturally impatient in everything to reach the end without delay. We should like to skip the intermediate stages. 
We are impatient of being on the way to something unknown, something new. And yet, it is the law of all progress that it is made by passing through some stages of instability and that it may take a very long time. Only God could say what this new spirit gradually forming within you will be. Give our Lord the benefit of believing that his hand is leading you and accept the anxiety of feeling yourself in suspense and incomplete. This prayer applies deeply to me at a personal level, maybe to you too. A large part of me is very anxious a lot of the time and I wanna to learn to accept that part of myself, to integrate and accept my anxiety as an invitation to the slow world. The problem is I don't like uncertainty. I want quick resolution. But the deep-seated racism that I believe exists in every white American, myself included, does not change overnight. My husband, Zach, and I were recently watching the movie 13th. It's a documentary produced by Ava DuVernay about how racism has evolved in our country from slavery to reconstruction to Jim Crow to segregation to mass incarceration. And in it, one of the commentators named Van Jones said something that struck me deeply. The opposite of criminalization is humanization. Jesus humanized people. The woman caught in adultery should, because of the systems in her day, have been stoned or shunned or set aside. Instead, Jesus said, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus sought out young children, telling us that we needed to become like them in order to inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus told a parable in which the good Samaritan was the good guy, which would have been unthinkable to any Jew in his time. Jesus humanized. And every time we are apathetic about the loss of another black life at the hands of those who are supposed to protect and serve our communities, we are dehumanizing. We are not trusting in the slow work of God. Instead, we are distancing ourselves from God's work of justice altogether. I see white Christians posting on social media saying things like, we need the Holy Spirit to envelop the nation. Things like, if everyone just knew Jesus, there would be no racism. And when I read that, I wonder, who's Jesus? Which Holy Spirit? Because I think the truth is that a lot of us white Christians are really attached to this kumbaya Jesus who we've made in our image when the reality is that Jesus flipped over tables when his father's house was desecrated. Jesus said things like, don't imagine that I came to bring peace to the earth. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. We white Christians like to quote passages about the peace of Christ. Indeed, we pass the peace of Christ to one another every Sunday, and that is a beautiful thing. But we are uncomfortable with the notion of Jesus holding a sword, of Jesus turning family members against each other. We want Sunday school Jesus, the one who does not threaten our status quo. How do we balance calls for justice, which are urgent, with trusting in the slow work of God? How do we do the internal work of waiting 
and lamenting and integrating while we also do the external work of donating, of protesting, of demanding systemic change. There's a beautiful hymn called Spirit of God Descend Upon My Heart. It was written in 1854 by George Crowley, an Irish priest, not long after he lost both his wife and his nine-year-old daughter. Part of it goes like this. Teach me to feel that thou art always nigh. Teach me the struggles of the soul to bear, to check the rising doubt, the rebel sigh. Teach me the patience of unanswered prayer. In time, this hymn made its way to America, and in 1958, it became the subject of a meditation by Howard Thurman. Thurman was a black theologian and civil rights leader. He actually spent the last 15 years of his life and ministry in San Francisco, where he helped start a church called the Church for the Fellowship of All Peoples that still exists. And Thurman was deeply influenced by the faith of his mother and his grandmother. Thurman spoke about this line, teach me the patience of unanswered prayer in a way that I think can shape us as we learn to live in a world of injustice under a God of patience. One of his quotes is in the reflection section of the worship folder. And he says this, who is there that has not carried at a central place in his concerns, the persistent hunger, sometimes dull and quiet, sometimes feverish and angry for something that has not come to pass. The Bible is littered with stories of people who were waiting for justice to be done. Psalm 10, part of what we heard read earlier, begins with a cry of outrage at the success of the evil and the apathy of God. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked persecute the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes they devise. Indeed, you note trouble and grief that you may take it into your hands. The helpless commit themselves to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoers. Seek out their wickedness until you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations shall perish from his land. O Lord, you will hear the desire of the meek. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice for the orphan and the oppressed so that those from earth may strike terror no more. George Floyd was called Perry by those who knew him, his middle name, a family name. He got involved later in his life in a ministry called Resurrection Houston, helping prepare the baptism tubs and mentoring young men. He won't be here to see them again or to celebrate his children's birthdays or watch them grow up and graduate and get married. The system that took George Floyd's life did not see him as fully human. The way of Christ sees every person as a beloved child of God. Today and every day, we have to choose which way we will follow. Today and every day, we lament, we mourn, we bear witness to pain, we pay attention, and we act. There is 
one more exception I know when I think of someone whose death for a time became the bigger story than his life. There were no obituaries written for him immediately, but over time, the obituaries filled the book. The Gospel of Mark was famously called a passion story with an introduction. This brown man's death, also an execution of state-sponsored violence, created the most famous symbol in world history. Crucifixion also ends life by asphyxiation. I can't breathe. But his life is somehow more luminous today than it was when it was lived. 2,000 years ago. So it happens sometimes with the strange, slow work of God. Amen.